Please turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. Author and CCEF counselor David Powlison has what he calls his anger Bible. He spent a year studying the Bible and highlighting with a marker every reference to anger throughout the, all the scriptures. What he found was surprising. He, he calculates that 95% of the pages of the Old Testament have at least one reference to anger. And to the surprise of us, to the surprise of us who thought that the Old Testament was the Testament of Wrath, it turns out that 98% of the New Testament pages has a reference to anger. We live in an anger-saturated world. And the Bible is not shy to address the pervasive problem of anger. This morning we finish our three-part series on anger by going back to the first reference to anger in the entire Bible, in the story of Cain. Please follow as I read Genesis chapter 4. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought forth some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought forth fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let us pray. Father, we are stunned by the remarkable candor of your scripture to deal with such an intense and pervasive human problem of anger. 
We ask, O oh Lord, that you would open our hearts, that we might understand what you would teach us from your word. And we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the most recent Spider-Man film, Peter Parker, also known as Spider-Man, learns the true identity of the man who murdered his Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben was a righteous and wise man. And Peter lived with the haunting memory of his beloved uncle. Ben was shot down in cold blood by a common thief. But years later, the police have discovered that they made a mistake. The real killer is not the man accused, rather his partner, who was in jail for another crime and now had escaped from prison. Peter, upon learning this news, begins a quest seeking bloodthirsty vengeance. Peter will soon discover that this killer, in some remarkable twist of fate, has gained superpowers, becoming the notorious Sandman. Peter's fear of the Sandman's strength, coupled with his bloodlust for vengeance, makes him vulnerable to a mysterious parasite, a cosmic disease of sorts from outer space. This alien life form establishes a symbiotic relationship with Spider-Man, enhancing his powers, enabling him to run faster and to be stronger, and yet also enhances and makes him more inclined to fits of rage and selfish ambition. Well, in his new and improved Spider-Man suit, he beats the Sandman. And boast in his triumph. Peter will go on to retaliate against his ex-girlfriend who has recently broken his heart. And then Peter will also humiliate a rival photographer. Exposing him as a fraud in ruthless fashion. Only the words of his dear Aunt May seem to get through to him. Peter is realizing that this parasite is consuming him with anger. And so Peter sets his mind and he somehow finds a way to rid himself of its destructive control. Not coincidentally in the bell tower of a church. But the Sandman was not dead after all. And Peter learns that he is after him. And a final showdown with Spider-Man. The two superheroes realize that their fighting is futile. And upon discovering the reason behind Spider-Man's vendetta, the Sandman apologizes to him. He goes on to acknowledge and reveal that he was, had been driven by fear to steal money to provide for his little girl who had very pressing health problems. Uncle Ben had just been at the wrong place at the wrong time. And so with deep remorse, the Sandman asked Peter to forgive him. Spider-Man forgives. The venom was gone. Like Spider-Man... 
You and I are vulnerable to the consuming power of anger when we are hurt by others or feel afflicted by God. In the weakness of our flesh, sinful anger desires to control us. But we are not helpless victims to the dominion of selfish rage. By God's grace, we are able to master our anger. I want to approach our text and our topic from three vantage points this morning. First, to consider the dangers of man's sinful anger. Secondly, see the demonstration of God's righteous anger. And lastly, to consider the dignity of redeeming our anger. What I want us to see firstly in our story of Cain is to see how his anger was ultimately selfish and aimed at punishing God. The narrator introduces us to Cain and Abel, the farmer and shepherd. The two brothers seek to worship God. But Abel's sacrifice receives God's favor, where Cain's does not. We are not told in the text how God showed such favor. Perhaps he came down and consumed the sacrifice with fire. Now, some people suppose that God showed favor upon Abel because he offered an animal sacrifice of blood. But this is not the likely reason. The book of Leviticus will go on to make provision for both animal offerings and grain, agricultural offerings. It seems clear from the Mosaic law that vegetable and animal are legitimate offerings to the Lord. A better explanation comes straight from our text. It says that Cain simply brought an offering of the ground. But Abel brought the firstborn offering of his flock. Abel brought his best to God. Cain brought average. Abel made a true sacrifice of faith. Cain was merely doing his duty. Abel brought his best to God, where Abel, Cain, kept his best to himself. Sadly, Cain refuses to acknowledge his failure, rather gets angry. He chooses to make excuses rather than to accept responsibility for his sin. He's consumed with himself, his own honor rather than God's honor. And like a two-year-old, he pouts. But God crashes his pity party. And notice how he does it with gentleness and yet firmness. God will ask Cain a question. A common strategy of our Lord to get sinners to think about what they have done. God does not come to Cain in heated accusations. God warns Cain. He personifies sin as a wild beast crouching at his door, ready to devour the one who steps through it. The words here echo God's curse upon the woman in Genesis 3. For her desire to control. And this cosmic struggle between husband and wife. And yet the husband will rule over her. See the power of sin desires to dominate us. It is a savage beast. But it can be tamed. 
and you must master it. Under pretense, Cain takes his brother out into the field to commit his treachery. His anger gives birth to full-blown murder. He kills his brother in cold blood, not in heated conflict, out of the sight of their parents, but not out of God's sight. He allowed his resentment to grow against his brother's righteousness and commits an act of rebellion against God. You see, from the very beginning, God established worship as an act of the heart. Yet Cain is unwilling to give God his heart. And so he will punish God by grieving the heart of God, attacking what is most precious in his sight, a righteous man who worships in spirit and in truth. In verse 9, God comes to Cain again, not accusing him, rather bringing illuminating questions to draw out the sinner. Nevertheless, Cain is defensive. He lies. He equivocates. Though he knows where Abel's body was left, he does not know where his spirit has gone to. Cain is cynical. He mocks Abel's profession, comparing him to a little lamb that needs a keeper. But God wisely ignores the excuses the cynicism, and go straight to the heart of the matter to confront the crime. Once again, with a question. And in so doing, God personifies his justice, using the mouthpiece of the soil and the blood, acting like a prosecuting attorney to indict the guilty man. God, for a second time, will curse the ground on which Cain has spilt righteous blood. The farmer has sowed seeds of bitterness and anger and will, in consequence, reap barrenness and estrangement. Cain will be denied fruitful labor and rest. Later on, the book of Ecclesiastes will call the man blessed who finds contentment in his work and rest from his labor. Such blessings are elusive in a cursed world. But nevertheless, Cain will refuse to humble himself. He chooses rather to complain that his punishment is too great. He is blind to the gravity of the crime he has committed. He only feels the weight of their consequences. And so he offers up a lament of self-pity, remaining self-focused, caring little for his brother, his family, his parents, or the glory and honor of God. And notice that Cain does not plea for mercy or ask forgiveness. And yet the Lord is merciful anyhow. Perhaps to spare Adam and Eve the grief of losing two sons. God will spare Cain. Not because of his goodness or contrition, but on the basis of God's own righteousness and the secret counsel of his will. Ephesians 4.31 exhorts us to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every other form of malice. James, in chapter 1, 19 and 20, will explain why when he says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because man's anger 
does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Meteorologists explain that a small tropical depression, when treated with the right conditions and enough heat, will swell to a massive hurricane. Hurricanes are unpredictable. And they attack the innocent, venting their wrath and leaving in their wake vast destruction and misery. Friend, what depressions are stirring in the deep waters of your heart? What conditions, what circumstances, and what people are tempting you into a state of uncontrollable fury? Ask of God that his spirit might help you to see them, expose them to the cool, refreshing air of God's grace. Uproot the seeds of bitterness before they grow into something monstrous. Anger desires to have you, but you must master it. In studying the character of Cain, I couldn't help but think of the story of Jonah, another man with an anger problem with God. It tells us in Jonah chapter 4 that upon seeing God spare the wicked city of Nineveh, and then destroying this little innocent plant, Jonah became very angry. Just like he had done with Cain, God comes to Jonah, confronting his anger with a gracious question. Do you have a right to be angry? Jonah answers in the affirmative. And with clenched fist, gritting his teeth, he retorts back, I am angry enough to die. What was Jonah so angry about? He'd already gotten over the whale incident. Yet he couldn't get over the fact that God was giving this wicked city the opportunity to repent. They didn't deserve pity. They had done nothing to earn mercy. And that's precisely the point. Are there Ninevehs in your life that you would love for God to destroy? Perhaps the liberal media. Certain members of Congress. The abortion industry. Anything that may threaten the things you cherish in our culture, our freedoms, in our historic Christian faith. It's amazing the heinous evils that God permits in his world and how he graciously allows each one of us sinners filled with our self-righteousness to take yet another breath. Cain was angry at God's righteousness. Jonah was angry at God's compassion. Cain was angry enough to kill Jonah was angry enough to die. Is God asking you, friend, do you have a right 
to be angry. Well, if anybody has the right to be angry, it is God. As I studied this topic, I found that of the almost 400 explicit references to anger in the Bible, not to mention the hundreds of other synonyms with anger, the vast majority of them refer to God's anger. What's surprising to me is that in Genesis, there is no mention of God getting angry with Adam and Eve. In fact, anger does not show up at all in the Bible until they have children. Imagine that. Nor does God express any anger with Cain. Even at the flood in Genesis 6, the emphasis is on God's grief and sadness rather than anger. But then comes Moses, the man who walked with God and saw God's face like no other mortal in human history. God got angry with Moses. God got even angrier with his people. God went to a lot of trouble to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. And what do those people do to show him gratitude? They grumble. They gripe about the food. They whine about the water. They nag with questions. Are we there yet? They accuse Moses and God of lying and murder. God has had enough. God is ready to exterminate his people. And it's Moses who intervenes to save the people of God. He pleads with God to spare the people, not for their sake, but for the very reputation of God. Because if God wipes out the people of God, all the other nations will think that Yahweh is just like all the other gods who lose their temper and fly off the handle. No. The Lord must find a way to satisfy his holy and righteous anger. And so God will give Moses a means of atonement by animal blood sacrifice. And yet Moses and the people of God will soon learn that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin or appease God's wrath. What was impossible for man and our sacrifices, God did by offering up his own son as a substitute. God sent Jesus to die in our place to abolish the problem of anger between a holy God and a sinful people. The greatest expression of anger in all of the Bible, in all of history, was not the flood. It was not upon Egypt at the Exodus, nor at the exile of God's people. The greatest expression of God's anger is at the cross. It was at the cross that God vented his full-blown wrath upon the one righteous man, Jesus. The mediator who was greater than Moses and whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Jesus drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop. He has quenched the storm's fury. And friends, you may find refuge in the eye of the hurricane by coming to Jesus. John the Baptist tells us in John 3 that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life because God's wrath remains on him. God has found a way to redeem his mighty anger, to exhaust it, to let it go. How about you? How are you and I going to redeem our anger? Let me suggest we do it in the same way that God did. By taking it to the cross. Our series title comes from Ephesians 4.26. The NIV translates it, In your anger do not sin, where Paul is quoting Psalm 4. The NIV unfortunately, softens the imperative nature of the verb. It's actually a command. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry at what? John Calvin interprets this verse telling us that we should first be angry at our sin. We should be so angry at our sin that we'd be moved to avoid it. Might we be so consumed with God's honor and righteousness that we would love goodness and hate what is wicked? Your anger can be redeemed. It's a motivating power to restrain sin in your life. To die to the love of sin with a holy anger and to live with a love of righteousness. Our anger can also be redeemed as we look upon us upon a broken, fallen world filled with oppression and injustice and do something about it. Author Paul Miller contrasts us with Jesus when he says, when people attack us, we get angry. When we see people attack others, we get sad, feeling helpless. Jesus is the opposite. When people attacked Jesus, he became sad for their sake. But when he saw people attack others, Jesus became angry as the just and righteous king. In the likeness of Jesus, might we give our time, our money, our energy to help bring to an end the enslavement of children. To the sex trade worldwide. To issues closer at home in abortion. The problem of fatherlessness. And other inequities. Inequities of the poor and the downtrodden. In the likeness of Jesus. Might we pray for our enemies. And stop hating them. A third way of redeeming our anger is reconciliation. Christ has called us to be ambassadors of this ministry. We are peacemakers. As Christians, we ought to be the first to confess our sins, 
to admit our wrongs and to offer forgiveness. Reconciliation goes a long way towards healing the wounds of anger. God recently did an amazing work in my own life. He enabled me by his grace to reconcile with a dear friend, a good friend from grade school, whom I hadn't spoken with in over eight years. A mutual friend of ours was contacted by him and passed on the contact information to me. And God convicted me of that and humbled me in my pride. And so I decided to write him, to send him an email just simply apologizing for the part that I played in breaking our dear friendship. I had to confess my sinful self-righteousness on the occasion of our falling out. I told him I was sorry for the pain that I had caused him. And I expressed my genuine desire that we might renew our friendship that I missed dearly and thought about on a weekly basis. I told him I understood if he was not interested at all in such renewal, but hoped that he might consider someday. And I wished him the best, praying God's rich blessing upon him. Not ten minutes after sending that email, he called me from over ten, over a thousand miles away. He offered forgiveness. He said what was in the past was in the past. The anger was gone. This friend of mine is a God-fearing man, yet does not walk with Jesus. And yet he forgave me and let go of his anger in a way that surpasses many Christians. He did not have a cross to take his anger, but you And I do. We have a sin-stained, blood-soaked cross to nail our grief and our vendettas, our bitterness, rage, and malice. To the cross must go all grudges, all ill will. Friend, you cannot beat your anger. You cannot manage it. You cannot contain it. You cannot hide it with a mask pretending that you're not angry. You must acknowledge it. You must confess it and let it go. You must kill it and lay it to rest, buried at the foot of the cross. Ironically, when Spider-Man sheds this cosmic parasite, it finds a new host... In the photographer, whose career was ruined by Peter. This photographer gains the same powers as Spider-Man and becomes the notorious Venom with a new vendetta against Spider-Man. Anger begets anger. The Venom recruits the Sandman as an ally, and the two of them challenge Spider-Man to an impossible rescue of the girl that he loves. Peter knows that he cannot take them both on. He humbles himself, and he goes to his former best friend turned enemy 
Harry, a young man also with superpowers. After years of hatred, Harry is able to reconcile himself to the fact that Spider-Man had not intended to kill his father, but had acted out of self-defense. Harry joined Spider-Man in the battle just in time and lays down his life to save Peter. Emboldened by Harry's forgiveness and sacrifice, Spider-Man gains the upper hand against Venom. And with great compassion, Spider-Man rescues the photographer and he separates the evil parasite and throws a bomb at this cosmic disease to destroy it. And yet the photographer will not let go. He clings to his beloved Venom and is destroyed with it. The moral of Spider-Man 3 is very clear. You will either master your anger or you will be consumed by it. Destroy it or it will destroy you. God has found a way to swallow up his righteous anger forever. Believer in Christ, know that you have power to master your anger. You must put it to death. And there's only one way. And there's only one place at the foot of the cross. Praise be to God, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Gracious and righteous God, we marvel at your wisdom and your power, how you have managed to satisfy your holy and righteous anger, setting us free, delivering us from the penalty of your wrath. And I just pray for each of us that we would learn to appropriate that grace as we battle with our own anger, that we would learn to take it to the cross, to find healing, to leave it there as a free people in the likeness of Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen.